Uh, if you have been there from the beginning of the month, if you've been here from the beginning of the month, we have been doing a quasi-study of the book of Matthew. So we've been picking some of the stories in the book of Matthew um, just to reflect on those stories and um, to see what those stories mean to us now. And if you are continuing to take time to read and study the book of Matthew, I continue to emphasize that you remember that this book, the writer of this book, is targeting the Jewish nation. He's targeting the Jews. And so he's writing in a language they understand. He's using imagery that they would understand. And in so many ways, he is mirroring or reflecting the life of Jesus Christ against the story of Israel, the story of the beginning of Israel, so that he would help them make sense that indeed the Messiah has come. The reason I emphasize that we read this book with those eyes and with that information that he's writing to the Jews is there's a tendency to go to the Bible with our biases and prejudice and come with our information, the information that we have, to want the Bible to mean what we want it to mean. And I don't think I can overemphasize that this word, this word of God, cannot mean to us what it did not mean to the audience it was written to originally. It is indeed important to remember that the word of God transcends generations. But as he inspires men to write the words in this book, he is inspiring them at that time to write for a specific audience. And then you and I would be beneficiaries thousands of years later of this living and active word of God. So remember that. Remember, it is the Jews, and it will help you make a lot of sense of the book of Matthew because of the way Matthew is writing. Today, I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4. I want us to look at Matthew chapter 4 from verse 1 to verse 11. And I am sure this portion of scripture is familiar to many of us because it is the temptation of our Lord Jesus in the wilderness. I will read, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. I will read at the end of, the, of my reading, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. Please help me respond and say, write it on our hearts, we pray. Can we try that? This is the word of the Lord. Indeed. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting... Forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, 
If you are the son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone will you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gift of this word. Thank you that it is alive right now. And we thank you that you have given it to us as a gift that it would accomplish the purposes of God, not just in the world around us, but in our hearts as well. So I pray, Father, that this word this morning would do a great ministry in us to rebuke us, to challenge us, to correct us, and to train us in all of righteousness. We submit that we know that even a brief interaction with your word is life-changing. And this morning we want, Lord, that you would teach us what we do not know, that you would give us what we do not have, that you would make us what we are not. This moment, Lord, all the glory belongs to you. And I pray that you would help me to step out of your way, and that your children, your people, including myself, would receive the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, in the end that we may be transformed into the image and likeness of him. We love you, we honor you, and we pray this in Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen. This is... um, a text of scripture that has drawn controversy among scholars and commentators of the Bible for many, many years. Many question whether it is possible for God to tempt Many question the use of the word tempt. You see in verse 1, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. Does God tempt? And if he does, is this consistent with his word in James, the book of James chapter 1 verse 3, which says, for the Lord does not put us into temptations. If we fall into temptations, would we say that it is the Lord who has put us? So this has generated a lot of conflict. And I'm sure maybe for some of us there is that wondering, how is it that that God would lead Jesus to be tempted? Now, I want you to 
focus on the events. It's focusing, let's focus on the events in this text, on the action in this text, and not on translation or any other thing, just the action in this text, so that the actions would help us to make sense of that. I tend to belong to the school of thought that says the word tempt is actually not appropriately translated because the word that is used um, that is used here in the original language, the Greek word is peirazo, and the word peirazo actually means testing. And the word testing and temptation would not have equal weight. So let's focus on the action. Now, this text opens after what has happened in Matthew chapter 3. We read Matthew chapter 1, the genesis of Jesus Christ, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew is introducing the Messiah to the Israel nation. And then last week we read Matthew chapter 2 and we focused on Jesus' family and the um, object of our focus on that uh, sermon last week was Mary and Joseph. Up to that point, we had not really begun to interact with Christ Jesus and his work. But when you come to chapter 4, we meet Jesus Christ. And the first thing that we see in chapter 4 is that he is being led to be tested or to be tempted by the devil. Now, if you are in this country on the 13th of September, you remember there was a change of regime. And on the 13th of, the, of September, we inaugurated a new government and a new president took charge of the instruments of power. That inauguration testimony, you see the moment, the moment he was handed the first instrument of power, if you're watching, you saw the aide de camp, the, the, the guy in military regalia who stands behind the president, moving from the former president to the new president, indicating a shift of power, but not just a shift of power, but that the assignment, the work of the new president began on that day. So this is, if you think of what happened on the 13th, I want you to try and apply that to what is happening here, but let's go back to Matthew chapter 3 and try and make sense of what I am saying. Look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you and you come to me. But Jesus answered him, let it be so now for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. So that's what has happened. Jesus has been baptized. In other words, he has been inaugurated. He has been commissioned into his assignment and into his ministry. What is happening in this text is the equivalent of the anointing of kings in the Old Testament. You saw God send a prophet to the house of Saul or to the house of Jesse. And when he sent the prophet, the prophet went, the prophet went with oil and he poured out the oil on the person to be king, and the spirit testified that this is the king that God has. 
chosen. So Jesus Christ is being inaugurated by this baptism, being inaugurated into his ministry. And then in chapter 4 verse 1, we see that he is being tested for his ministry. He is being tested to determine whether he qualifies for his ministry. Whether the difficult economy, whether the difficult circumstances, the difficult Pharisees and the enemies and the cross that was set before him, that it is to be determined by these temptations whether he is qualified for that assignment. Now, it is interesting that God would do this. It is interesting that God would test himself because Jesus is God. Alright? But we also know that Jesus functions both as God and as human. And so when you think of the action in Matthew chapter 4, don't think of the divinity of Christ, the side of his divinity. Think so much more of the side of his personhood, his humanity, the humanness of Jesus Christ is what is being put to test. Not his divinity. It is his humanity that is being put to test. And who is testing him? He says he is sent by the spirit to be tested by the devil. By the devil. And he's being tested by the devil himself, not by demons, not by the angels of Satan, not by a neophyte intern, not by the deputy devil, but by the devil himself. And what Matthew is showing us here then is that Jesus Christ has not just come to face the cross. He has not just come to prove that he is qualified to face the cross and to save humanity. He has come to confront, to confront the evils of the world and make a triumph over them. And that is why the Lord, the God of the universe, the creator of the heavens and earth, gets into a duel with the God, the prince of the air. Are we together, my friends? Are we together? This is, this is yes. Where I come? This is yes. Are we together? Amen. All right. So the devil himself against Christ the king himself. Christ has already been baptized. He's already been anointed. He's already been coronated or inaugurated into his Christ dome or his messianic assignment. And the first assignment that he has to face is against the devil himself. And as you read throughout Matthew chapter 4, you will see that indeed Christ makes a triumph over the enemy. Christ makes a triumph over the enemy. Now, look at verse 2 as we get into, as we begin to get into the temptations. Verse 2, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, and the tempter came to him, this is verse 3, and said, if you are the son of God. Stop there. See. Now, this guy, the devil, is very smart. 
He is very smart. Because he is appealing, he is appealing to Jesus' identity. He is appealing to who Jesus is. And he, he asks, he tells him, if you are the son of God. Now we read what, what the commissioning that happened in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 to 16. But listen to verse, six, um, verse 16. Sorry, we read, we read up to verse 16. Listen to verse 17. And behold, a voice came from heaven and said, this is my beloved son. Listen, God himself has spoken of the son. God himself has given his assurance of the son and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It is so interesting that the enemy, the devil, would use the same words that the Lord God has spoken over the son. God the father has spoken over the son to get him to question his identity. To get him to test his identity. He says, if you are the son of God, you see, the devil's trick, the devil's trick from the days of old to your time and mine is to get you, to try and get you to doubt, to question, to be anxious about what God has said about you. A lot of our sin and struggle with sin is because we doubt is because we are struggling in faith to believe what God has spoken about us. Israel doubted. Israel doubted. You remember we read last week and we said it was so that it would be fulfilled what was said by the prophet that out of Egypt I called my son. My son here is Israel. Israel wanders into the wilderness and when they're in the wilderness they are faced with these kinds of temptations. They are faced with the temptations for hunger, temptation you know to, to, to worship the gods of um, the, the, the Baals, the gods of, 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 of other nations. But they give in to the temptations because they don't believe that the God who saved them, the God who called out his son Israel out of Egypt is the same God in the wilderness and that it is the same God who would sustain them in the wilderness. So where Israel, the first son, fails, Jesus, the second Israel, stands up against the same temptation and he becomes victorious. And not just Israel, not just Israel. We see this even in the first Adam when the serpent walks to him and appeals to his uh, uh, appeals to his hunger and he appeals to Eve and they fall into the temptation and eat the fruit that God forbade them not to eat they fail so where Adam failed where Eve failed where Israel failed Jesus Christ faces the same temptations and he's told if you are the son of God command these stones to become like loaves. But Jesus answered and says, it is written. Now, again, remember Matthew is writing to a, to a, to a Jew and he's quoting Jewish scriptures. And so what he's about to quote that Jesus responded, he says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. He's quoting from Deuteronomy chapter 8. 
It is written that man shall not live by bread alone. Now listen. Man needs bread to live. You need food to live. In fact, you would be told that, 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 that the basic needs for man is food, water, and shelter. Is it, is it food, food, clothing, and shelter? Sorry. Food, clothing, and shelter. So food forms a very important part of the basic needs of humans. So man needs bread. Jesus is not saying, stop eating bread. He is saying that man shall not live only by bread. So you need food. You need food. But I want you to think of what, what bread here means. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. What does bread mean here? Yes, it does mean food. But it could also mean power. It could also mean fame. It could also mean a job. It could also mean a marriage. It could also mean children. It could also mean all the things you dream and aspire to have. Those things are good things. And they are made by God that you would enjoy them. But listen to me. It is not by these things alone that man shall live. It is not by these things alone. So it is good that you want a good job. It is good that you want a good marriage. It is good that you want good children. But it is not these things by themselves that cause you to be alive. It is every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. It is what God has said about you. And I know when you're told about what God has said about you, you'll be told things like God has said you are held and not your head and not the tail, you are before and not beneath. You'll be told all those things and all those things are good. But what this means, what I believe this means is that you have so much more to do for God. You have a greater purpose to live for God. You have a greater assignment to be alive for than just what is spoken about you. Man shall not live by bread alone. What Jesus is doing here is the devil questions, causes, tries to cause him to doubt his identity, tries to question his identity. Now, listen, Jesus had the power. Jesus had the power to turn the stones to bread. He could have done it. He didn't even need the devil to ask him to do it. But if he had done it, then he would have been dissuaded from his mission. He would have served a different mission from the mission that God has identified for him, that God has called him for. And so he chooses not to give in to the temptations. He chooses not to use his divinity, his sonship to his own advantage. The Apostle Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 and he says, chapter 2 verse 5 and 6, he says, Though he was in the very nature God, he did not consider equality with God as something to be used to his advantage. Instead, he emptied himself, he humbled himself even unto death and death on the cross. You see, Jesus could have used his power. In fact, he was hungry 
and if he used his power to turn the stones to bread, nobody would have questioned him. But if he did this, then he would have been using his power the wrong way. He would have been dissuading or shifting from his assignment. He would have been using his position to his own advantage. To serve a shadow mission. To serve his own objective. The purposes for which God has made you is that he would receive the glory. And Jesus knows that and he causes us, he's causing us to focus on bringing God the glory. And so what do you have? Whether children or a good marriage, whether a good job or power or position, if it is not serving the purposes of God, then you are living by bread alone. If the talents and skills that God has given you are not being used to the glory of God, then you are man who is living by bread alone and that man is as good as dead. If all you need is bread, then the man who lives on bread alone is living, walking dead. If the spiritual gifts that God has given you are not being used to the glory of God, then you are living by bread alone. If you are in a position of power, a position of influence, and you are using that position for your own advantage, then you are going against the word of God and living by bread alone. God gave you his gift. He gave us his Holy Spirit. The word says the Holy Spirit has sealed us as a guarantor of the salvation that we have. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 1, as a guarantor of the salvation that we have. That Holy Spirit is manifested by the gifts of God functioning to edify the body of Christ, functioning to edify humanity. If we are serving our own shadow mission, then we are using the gifts of God to our own advantage and we are not following the example that Christ has set for us. The second point I want to make here is do not underestimate the devil. If the devil knew Jesus this much, how much does he know you? If he knew that this is the son of God, how much does he know you? Listen, the devil knows your weakness. He knows. He knows your kryptonite. He knows the fingers he needs to stop to cause you to stumble and fall. He is a liar, but he is wise. And so dalliance with the devil and making treaties with sin and acting as if we are more powerful than sin, as if we are stronger than sin, is a deception, is a lie that we tell ourselves. If the devil would be as courageous to stand before the Son of God and tell him, if you are the Son of God, how much more you and I? And so, 
the example Jesus is setting for us here in his response is do not flirt with sin. Do not, you can't say you are trying to break from alcoholism and live under the bar. You can't say that you are trying to fight an addiction to alcoholism and live next to the beer garden. You are not that strong. That's why the word tells you, flee, resist the devil, resist him with everything that you have. Resist the devil and he will flee. Do not trivialize Satan. Do not trivialize him because he knows your weakness. The, the, the biggest, one of the biggest tools in the devil's arsenal is to play with our discontentment. Is to find our places of discontentment and manipulate them. So he's, you see, he finds that Jesus is hungry and thirsty and he invites, entices his situation. You understand? Your discontentment. Look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. And see the conversation between Eve. Look at verse 6 of Genesis chapter 3. It says this. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, listen, it was not that Eve did not have food. It was not that they were lacking. Every other tree, every other plant was theirs for food. But this one tree that the devil uses to entice her, she sees that it is good for food. In other words, Eve and Adam were physically discontented. It was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that it was a tree to be desired to, desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The devil knows how to play with our discontentment. In fact, a lot of our temptations, a lot of the temptations we fall into is because of our discontentment. And so what discontentment in you is the devil appealing to in this season? What is that one area he's enticing you into? Is he enticing you to flat, to get into an extramarital affair? And it's, you know... Many of those things don't just happen once. They don't happen, you know. It, it, I, you know, I, I, we say, I fell. You know, I, I, I was walking, just like I was walking. And no, you have been flirting with this thing. You have been having an alliance with this thing for a while. What you should have said at the beginning is our Lord's response. It is written, I shall not live by bread alone. Are we together, my friends? So that's the first temptation. And I don't know how I'm doing for time. Let's see if we can go to the second temptation and make sense of it. The second temptation starts with verse 5. 
says then the devil took him to the holy hill uh, took him to the holy hill city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him if you are the son of god throw yourself for it is written he will command his angels concerning you and their hands will bear you up lest you strike your foot against the stone now if you're reading this carefully you notice that the 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 devil satana has changed his tactic you notice the tactic has changed how has it changed? How has the tactic changed? Remember, he said what? He's using the word. Remember Jesus' response in the first instance. He said, it is written. Then the devil goes, oh, so you know the word. Let me show you that I also know the word. You see, succeeding and glorifying God and resisting temptation is not just about how well you know the scripture. Because if it is about knowing the scripture, it is a, if it is about memorizing scripture, the devil knows that better than you. In fact, he probably knows the whole Bible. The devil knows. So it is not about how many verses of the Bible you can quote. Because you see here he is quoting. Which, which book is he quoting? He is quoting Psalms 91. That psalm that reminds us of God's protection and care. How God will protect us from the foulest snare. The devil is using that. Jesus quoted for him Deuteronomy chapter 8. He quotes a different, just to show him, you know, this Bible thing, I know it too. It is not about knowing the scripture and filling our heads with scripture. It is about this word of God being written in our hearts that this word of God would find in our hearts a flesh, a heart of flesh upon which the law of God would be written and from our hearts, from the fullness of our hearts, our mouth will speak and we will respond to the world around us and to the temptations that would come our way. So knowing scripture is not enough. If applying that scripture is done in the wrong way. Says, I'll set you on the holy city. And Jesus says to him, it is written. You shall not do what? You shall not put the Lord your God to test. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What Jesus is telling the devil here is that God is not a abracadabra. God is not a magician that you go to him and say, God, do this or that for me. That You know, that's not how God works. It's not how God works that we put ourselves in harm's way. We put ourselves in temptation's way. We go against the will of the Father. And expect him to rescue us without any consequence. Even David, the man who was after God's own heart, if God forgave him after he had slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband Uriah the Hittite, God sent the prophet Nathan to to David, and 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 David Nathan rebukes him and tells him, "You are the man." That I'm talking about. Read that story. 
in the book of uh, Samuel. And, 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 and David writes this long confession, long repentance. If you read uh, Psalm 51, Psalm 51 is David's repentance after he had committed murder and uh, slept with um, Bathsheba and committed murder. He writes this confession, but even though God forgives him, he tells him, the sword shall not depart from your house. You see, we cannot work with God by making bad choices and believing that God will rescue us because you know he would be endorsing our foolishness. God would be endorsing our foolishness when he has called us to be wise and wisdom is in resisting the devil and he will flee. You shall not put the Lord your God to test. Temptation number three. And the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all this I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to, to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone. And him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil takes him to this high mountain. High mountain. You remember when we read, when we talked about the coronation of Jesus Christ and him being inaugurated into his office, the messianic office at the baptism. God has said, this is my son in whom I am well, I am well pleased. The son, the son is worthy of his father's inheritance. In fact, the son, as you will see, God will make him Lord over all things. God will make him Lord over all of creation. That at the name of Jesus, everything in heaven and on earth will bow down and confess that he is God. Look at the messianic psalm in Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2. This psalm is spoken of the Messiah. Let's read. I will read actually. Um, let me read from verse, five, from verse 6. As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. This is the Messiah. The Messiah is set on Zion, the holy hill of God. I will tell of the decree, verse 7, the Lord said to, to, to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And look at verse 8. He says, ask of me. See that? Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage the ends of the earth, your possession. So you see, like I told you, this satana knows the Messiah and he knows he's the son and he knows because he's the son, he's entitled to inheritance of what the father owns. But what he's doing here, he is, he is the tempt, he's tempting the Messiah to come into in his, his in, inheritance too early before he has accomplished the assignment. Before he has accomplished the assignment. Let me tell you why it was necessary that the Lord, the Messiah, accomplishes the assignment. Go with me to the book of Hebrews. The Messiah, 
would only be exalted and elevated to sit at the right hand of the Father after he had accomplished the assignment. And what the devil is doing here is to get him to turn his back from the assignment to get the inheritance too soon. Look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7. Sorry, not verse 7, verse 4. No, verse, verse 3. Verse 3b. So let's read from verse 3a. He says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, this is the assignment that the Messiah has to accomplish in order to come into his exalted status. He says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he had to make purification before he became exalted. But what Satana is doing here is wanting to get him into that position before he accomplishes his assignment. And Jesus Christ, because he knows that there is no shortcut to glory, there is the only way he will get to the crown is through the cross. This time he responds with such an assertiveness. He responds to the devil with such an assertiveness. He said, be gone, Satan. Because you cannot get me to turn from the Father's will, to turn from the Father's assignment, to turn from what I have been called to do because you want to give me a shortcut. You see, my friends, there is no shortcut to the glory of God. You have to put in the work. God has given you a talent. You're not going to be able to sing by just waking up and going to the mic. You have to put in the work. It is through sweat and tears and rejection and disappointment and discouragement that you will get to the glory that God has prepared for you. Listen, being assured of the crown is one thing, but getting to it is another. Being assured of the crown That glory is one thing, but getting that glory is another. And so in what ways, my friends, is God, is the devil tempting you to take shortcuts? To get there too early, to get there without the work, to get there spoiled and not know how to be a good steward because you have not paid any price. Say it like Jesus said it. Be gone Be gone from me. Be gone from me. For it is written, you shall serve the Lord your God and him alone shall you. You shall worship the Lord your God and him alone shall you serve. It is easy for the devil to get you to serve your own mission. A mission that is separate from what God would have you do. It is easy for the devil to want you to achieve, to attain glory for yourself. And you see, glory is good. It is very good. This this thing that the devil is promising Jesus, that I will give all this to you, these things are good. But if you should be so tempted to get to them and not focus on the mission, then you have received your reward in full. There is no crown 
after that, you have received your reward in full. So here is what I'm saying as I close. Number one, bread is good. But it's not by bread alone that we live. We live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Father. What purpose? For what purpose do we live? We live to glorify God and to worship him and to achieve his purposes and bring glory to him. Number two, God is not a magician, abracadabra, and things happen. He is not. And God would not be manipulated. God would not be put to the test to do things in our own terms and do things the way we want him to do. God would not be tempted to do that. And number three, there is no shortcut to glory. So stick it out, child of God. Stay there and pay the price. Feel the rejection and the pain. Feel the rejection and the pain. And remember this. Our example is Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him. Who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And it's after enduring the cross that the Lord exalted him. So what are you going to do with this word? As you go into this week, what changes do you need to make with your life? In what ways have you been flirting with the devil? In what ways have you been flirting with sin? In what areas of your life do you need to tell Satana, flee from me, be gone from me? And many of, some of us, maybe we have gone too deep. We gave in to one temptation. You gave in to one temptation many years ago as a teenager. And it's been years of fighting to break free. If you would turn to God, he's willing to help. I want to take some time and pray that we would pray together. And I want you to just open your heart to God. What? Where are you at? Where are you at? If you would just confess to him, Lord, I gave in to this temptation. I didn't even know I was introduced to alcohol by my friends in school as a teenager and now it has consumed me completely to sex and pornography and drugs or whatever, to flirting. And it has consumed me and it's on the verge of consuming my relationships. Lord, I need your help. I need your help. And I'm turning to you, Lord, because you alone are my strength. And so break my heart with your word. Where the devil has planted the 
heart of stone, Lord, would you give me a heart of flesh upon which you can write your laws. Cause your Holy Spirit to renew me, to renew my heart, to renew my mind. And Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in my life. Remind me to live for you and not for myself. To live to glorify you and to worship you alone. And give me strength, oh God. Give me strength together with Jesus that I would resist the devil and that I would mean it. In Jesus' name, amen.